The names of men like King Arthur, Merlin, Sir Lancelot, and the other knights of the Round Table are instantly recognizable to almost anyone in the English-influenced world. Their epic quests and values of honor and chivalry accompany them always throughout their tales. Likewise, the Holy Grail and the search for it have become foundational in storytelling traditions far beyond simple fantasy. The legends of these noble men are clearly etched into the collective minds of countless people who have heard them. Less well known, however, are the details of these stories, but a close symbolic reading shows exactly why these tales have had such a lasting impact on the storytelling traditions of our world today. Intentionally searching for the meaningful truth behind the night's most prolific quests will show a greater truth behind not only these stories, but the medieval understanding of the world that formed them, as well as a great truth behind life that is equally crucial today. The quest for this truth will follow the triumphs and failures of King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table in their greatest mission, the search for the Holy Grail. My name is Sean. Welcome to Mythos and Logos. Today, we think of tales of Camelot as relics of another era. And even to those who heard them first, these were historical tales. The quest for the Grail, as written, begins in the year 487 AD, during the Feast of Pentecost. Multiple key events in Arthurian legend take place on this day, regardless of the year, one of the most important celebrations on the Christian calendar. See, Pentecost marks the anniversary of the descent of the Holy Spirit onto Christ's apostles, which is described in the biblical book of the Acts of the Apostles. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Key events in Arthurian legend take place on Pentecost, including what may be the king's most recognizable moment, when Arthur removes the sword from the stone, signifying his place and crowning him as the true king of the Britons. This is no accident, pointing to Arthur's undoubtedly mystical kingship. His birth was arranged by Merlin, who was a wizard after all, taking that and granting it a Christian significance. See, it's clear then, when a new knight arrives at the round table on Pentecost of the year 487, that he is going to be far from ordinary. The knights arrive in Camelot, meeting King Arthur at the round table, where each seat is newly and unexplained, inscribed with gold. Each chair is decorated with the name of each knight who is to sit there. Arthur, Lancelot, Gawain, and so on. But all of the men claim that they were not the one responsible for this writing. Each seat is saved for one, the Siege Perilu, on which the golden letters read, 
400 winters and four and fifty, accomplished after the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, ought this siege to be fulfilled. The Siege Perilou, or as one might say in modern English, Seat of Danger, is said to have been crafted by the wizard Merlin, so that anyone who sits in it would be immediately destroyed, save for the one who would lead the knights to the Holy Grail. Each of the men, however, has their place marked, and none are foolish enough to risk their life for a place of glory. When they see the newly written prophecy, and after some math realize that that very day is the day on which it is to be fulfilled, they cover the mysterious writing with a cloth. And shortly after, a young foreign knight, who has not been seen before, arrives to pledge his service to Arthur's court. The young knight is led by his guide to the only seat empty among them, the Siege Perilou. And to the knight's marvel, he sits there without harm. Arthur explains the prophecy to the young knight, lifting the cloth, covering the seat to offer proof of the divine mission. And yet when he does, a new inscription is there. Marvelous gold letters bearing the young knight's name, Galahad. The men depart for the day as Arthur welcomes Galahad into his service, explaining to him the significance of the seat and the prophecies associated with it. That evening, the knights regroup for dinner, when suddenly a thunderous crack is heard. The knights jump, ready to defend their fortress and their home. In the midst of this blast entered a sunbeam, more clearer by seven times than ever they saw day, and all were lighted by the grace of the Holy Ghost. Then began every night to behold other, fairer than they ever saw afore. Then there entered into the hall the Holy Grail, covered with white Samite, but there was none might see it, and there was all the hall fulfilled with good odors, and every night at such meats and drinks as he loved best in the world. And when the Holy Grail had been borne through all the hall, the Holy Vessel departed suddenly. Then had they all breath to speak. The knights in this vision see not only their greatest pleasures, but also see each other as they might be in their most perfect form. The brightness and beauty of each man, however, is not something emanating from them. Rather, a reflection of the brightest light of the Holy Spirit that they encountered. The knights see each other not as they are, but as they might be, having actualized their highest potential. To a medieval audience, this image of divinity as goodness and light would be instantly recognizable, along with the belief that the purpose of life is to contemplate, thereby reflect that light of knowledge, love, and goodness. The dual meaning of the word reflection in English demonstrates this belief. A reflection is an image bounced off of one object onto another, but also refers to a serious thought about something. This is why each night appears more fair and glorious during their vision of the Grail than ever before. 
because having their minds so full in reflection on its mysteries, even to the point where they cannot speak, creates a visual reflection of the glory contained in the grail upon their bodies. Arthur reacts immediately, breaking out in prayers of thanks, while Sir Gawain is the first to decide to set out on a quest for the Holy Grail. He sees how he was transformed by a vision of the Grail, even if only under covers, and declares it his life's purpose to find it again. Many other knights, having had the same encounter, petition Arthur to let them join Sir Gawain in the quest. The newly knighted Galahad joins Gawain, of course, and is joined by Lancelot, Percival, and Bors, though they soon take diverging paths. Lancelot takes his own route, which after a long while passes a small forest chapel, where exhausted, he stops to rest. There, with his mind between wake and sleep, Lancelot dreams of two white horses carrying a crippled knight. The knight stops before the chapel, kneels before its cross, and cries out a heartfelt prayer for healing, at which the Holy Grail appears. The wounded knight crawls to it on his hands and knees, drinks from it, and is healed. Lancelot, paralyzed either by sleep or by guilt, is unable to move. Lancelot sees the knight rise and take his horse, helmet, and sword before he falls back into full sleep. When Lancelot wakes, he finds that his horse, helmet, and sword are indeed missing. His vision of the night healed by the grail was neither a dream nor a hallucination caused by too much time awake in the saddle. Instead, Lancelot was in fact asleep to the truth of the miraculous event that he had just seen. A voice commands Lancelot to leave at once, and he departs, spending the night wandering through the woods in tears. Before the dawn comes, Lancelot curses the day he was born, ashamed of his life's work as a knight, confessing that everything he has ever done was only for prestige and fame. Foremost in the eyes of Queen Guinevere, wife of King Arthur, with whom he has carried on a secret relationship for years. Every contest he entered, every battle he fought, right or wrong, was not for honor or service to his king, but only to win her favor. One last secret is revealed to Lancelot by a strange hermit before he carries on in his journey. That through magic, the daughter of a foreign king disguised herself as Guinevere and encountered Lancelot one night, and that the resulting child is none other than Galahad. In the meantime, Sir Galahad wins a jousting tournament, after which his path reconnects with the other two knights on his course, Bors and Percival. They meet with Percival's sister, who presents the knights with an ancient sword destined for a great knight who would never fall in battle. Percival attempts to unsheathe the sword with no success, and Bors does the same. Galahad, however, does not make an attempt until he is pushed to by Percival's sister. Galahad, 
unsurprisingly, if you've been following so far, succeeds, of course. Here, as earlier, Galahad's humility is what allows him to fulfill such a great destiny. Sometime later, the group arrives at a castle, where the three knights, led by Sir Galahad, are attacked by a group of twelve men who aim to capture Percival's sister for a blood ritual to save the life of their queen. They're able to defeat them, driven forward by their greater quest and purpose. It is perhaps this battle that inspired the opening lines of Lord Alfred Tennyson's poem, Sir Galahad. Reading. My good blade carves the casks of men, my tough lance thrusteth sure. My strength is as the strength of ten, because my heart is pure. After their victory, the men are not proud, but distressed at having been involved in so much bloodshed. Sixty more knights prepare to attack, until they are stopped by the intervention of Percival's sister. If dozens of lives are to be lost over her, she requests at least an audience with the queen. Percival's sister decides, rather than have the violence continue, to sacrifice her own life in what turns out to be more like a blood transfusion than a dark ritual. However, just before her death, she's given a message which she shares with the knights. The location of the Holy Grail in the city of Sarnas, and how they are to reach it by saving that city's maimed king. Galahad's group departs in the direction of Saras, docking in a number of ports along the way. Saras is placed in the Middle East, on the road from Jerusalem to Babylon, likely somewhere in Syria, thus mirroring the biblical journey of the Jews' Babylonian exile. In one Mediterranean port, Galahad is finally met by his father Lancelot. The father and son sail across the sea for six months, praying, hunting, and taming wild beasts together on their way. When they make landfall, a knight clad head to toe in white armor, riding a majestic white horse, tells the men that they must part. Galahad embraces his father in a heartfelt goodbye and rides to meet the maimed king. Lancelot, on the other hand, rides directly for the castle of the Holy Grail. Sir Lancelot approaches the castle on a clear, moonlit night and charges armed to its gate, which is guarded by two ferocious lions. Suddenly, he's stopped by a fierce blow to the arm from a hidden guardian, and hears a disembodied voice chastise him. O man of evil faith and poor belief, wherefore trust thou more on thy harness than in thy maker? For he might more avail thee than thine armor, in whose service thou art set. Lancelot, ashamed, sheathes his weapon. The lions growl as he passes, but do not attack. Lancelot then approaches the chamber of the Holy Grail. And with that he saw the chamber door open, and there came out a great clearness, that the house was as bright as all the torches of the world had been there. And anon a voice said to him, 
Flee, Lancelot, and enter not, for thou oughtst not to do it. Lancelot holds at the door, where he sees a priestly figure who appears to be performing mass with the grail. The priest prays for permission to allow Lancelot to enter, which he is granted. But when he enters into the presence of the grail, a breath of fire, brighter and hotter than any he has ever known, pushes Lancelot back, blinding and paralyzing him for twenty-four days until he is found by the other knights. When he finally wakes from his comatose state, Lancelot describes the most peaceful feeling of his life. During his coma, the proud knight realizes why he is not able to handle the intensity of the grail. It lasted 24 days for the 24 years in which he's carried on his affair with Guinevere. And he knows that he didn't seek the Holy Grail for the mystery it contained, but only for the status and prestige of being the knight who found it. In the meantime, Galahad heals the maimed king with a miraculous holy spear that was gifted to him. They are brought to the castle and are fed of the Holy Grail by a man who it soon's become clear is none other than Jesus Christ himself. They're fed by bread, which transforms into flesh before their eyes. And Galahad is granted one wish. He asks to choose the time of his death, and it is granted. After a time spent imprisoned by a paranoid tyrant who is threatened by Galahad healing his rival, the maimed king, the men are released, having been sustained by the grail throughout that time. Galahad is offered kingship for life, but declines, choosing instead to leave this world due to the faith he has in the next. He is entombed, along with Percival's sister, and soon Percival himself, in the Grail Castle. Their companion, Sir Bors, returns to Camelot, telling Arthur the story of the quest, including what was told to him by Jesus in the castle that from that day forward, no other man will find the Holy Grail on earth. The quest for the Holy Grail, in all, spends five years in this story. From Lancelot's failures to the mystical sacrament in which Galahad partakes, each person involved was affected uniquely and greatly. As one king is healed, another is driven to paranoia. As one knight is paralyzed by the overwhelming power of the grail, and another meets the Christ figure whose life gave the artifact meaning, the difference causing these results was each man's character and ability to see the greater meaning behind the seemingly ordinary. In Lancelot's first encounter with the holy grail between sleep and wakefulness, it tragically is not a dream but rather that he was symbolically asleep to the Grail's true meaning. In seeing the glory he could earn, the fame he could be given, and the queen whose love he could win, he missed the truth that was right in front of him. The pure-hearted Galahad, on the other hand, 
is focused on his quest because of what the grail symbolizes. This is why he's offered a glimpse behind the curtain, into the greater meaning behind the ordinary. This is why he sees the bread become flesh, and why, looking for the grail, he meets Jesus Christ face to face. Galahad's pure heart gave him clear eyes, to see the world not for how it appears, but for the greater truth behind it. His willingness to seek the truth in things for what they are, reflections, that is, of the goodness that created them, rather than simply what he has to gain for them, is what grants Galahad a greater reward than even his own father. Though the story of the Holy Grail is ancient to us, and even was to its medieval readers, its moral is deeply applicable to the modern world. Even if one has no interest in the Christian sacraments pointed to by the story, a sacramental understanding of the world, that is to say, an understanding that things are more than they appear, is crucial in today's culture. As humans are ever more frequently reduced to numbers, and objects are thought of only as tools for personal gain, a pure heart and open eyes will restore not only dignity to each other, but a sense of magic to the world around us. This way, we can experience the world as a major inspiration for the character of Galahad, the Christian mystic Bernard of Clairvaux did, when he said, You will find something far greater in the woods than in books. Stones and trees will teach you that which you cannot learn from the masters. Thank you for joining in this look at the stories of King Arthur and the Holy Grail quest. This is the longest episode we've done so far. And, uh, well, that's because this was a much longer text. We had to abridge it, but there is there are a lot of side stories and side quests. Like I said, this story takes up a span of five years. Uh, this one was requested by a very good friend of mine. So I hope that, uh, Ethan, I hope you listened and enjoyed Everyone else, if you did listen and enjoy, please leave a comment. Let me know why. Let me know if there's anything I missed. And I hope you'll also subscribe so that you can follow us for any more um, as these come. Up next is actually going to be another request, um, but I can't credit this one to just one person as I've gotten it from two or three by now at least, which is the story, the Greek myth of Orpheus. It's going to be fun. Until next time, my name is Sean. Thank you for listening to Mythos and Logos. See you soon.